0: Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by
1: learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artisan food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything
0: delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. It is my job to feed your soul. And since the culinary landscape is ever evolving, on this show, you'll hear from chefs and pastry aficionados, restaurateurs, molecular gastronomers, and food bloggers, some pretty famous cookbook authors, a few wine geeks, a beer expert or two, and of course, we dish on fabulous food, wine and spirits, travel, health, and living the best life because I cover Everything that truly feeds your soul. So I hope you won't miss a Sunday of delicious conversation with me. If you're a passionate food and wine lover, well then stay tuned because of course the cooking channel and Food Network host, now PBS star Ellie Krieger is stopping by. She has some healthy tips for entertaining before summer runs out. We're also going to dish on the great cork debate Yes, does your wine bottle this afternoon have a real cork? Well, we'll tell you all about it and I'll tell you why I think it should. And before the end of the hour, beer lovers rejoice because we are celebrating with the biggest beer festival of the year in the country. So brewmasters, stay tuned. Okay, so I always kick off the show with a lesson, a tutorial, hopefully to make you a better cook in your own kitchen. And I'm here to tell you today that you're cooking fish all wrong. You see, aside from grilling a beautiful piece of salmon on a cedar plank with a maple chipotle glaze before summer ends... Fall and winter are going to come around, and you're going to be standing in front of the fish case at your gourmet supermarket or with your fishmonger, and you're going to see gorgeous shrimp or salmon or halibut, and you might be tempted to quickly saute it. But wait, this is the moment that you master olive oil poaching. Because once you have tasted the silky, beautiful succulents of olive oil poached fish, you just didn't know before what you were missing. And don't change the station, touch your dial, you know, go to another podcast or even shake your head at me, please. Because it's not greasy fried fish that I'm talking about. It's actually a technique that delivers tender, juicy, flavorful results, and it is neither difficult... Or messy. So you should keep listening because you are going to be a master olive oil poacher. And in the end, yes, you will thank me. So, olive oil poaching is all about texture. I use a foolproof three step method for the silkiest, most luxurious fish that you've ever tasted. And you can try it out with recipes from, as I mentioned, shrimp to salmon, halibut, even tuna. Think about olive oil poached shrimp with a fresh tomato sauce over pasta. Oh, so good. Or olive oil poached salmon with smashed potatoes and broccolini for dinner. Yum, right? How about olive oil poached halibut with a fennel puree? Oh, yes. And I love to olive oil poach tuna and serve it cold or even on a sandwich with a Dijon balsamic vinaigrette. It's interesting, olive oil poached fish actually lends itself very well to eating it cold. So the leftovers are luscious. Now poaching fish in the most traditional classic French technique is gently cooking it in a liquid over low heat. Traditionally, it's a light broth. It's also called a court bouillon and the finished fish comes out very delicious and light and flaky and it's lovely and very classical. Well, this classic technique is the foundation for a very different way of cooking fish, which is poaching in olive oil. Very simply, the method involves submerging a piece of fish in a bath of warm olive oil and then cooking it at a low temperature to the perfect doneness. Now, the fish emerges with this silky texture And this very pure flavor that is far from fishy. And you really can't achieve it with any other cooking method. So it's really very easily done. You take the fish out of the refrigerator. You season it with salt and pepper, and you let it sit at room temperature for at least a half hour and up to an hour, because the goal is to bring it as close to room temperature as possible without letting it get warm, essentially. This is going to ensure that when you olive oil poach, the fish cooks evenly all the way through at the same time, as in the same time span, you know, from the exterior to the interior. Now you heat olive oil in preferably a wide sauté pan, one that has sides, also called a sauteuse, and you heat it just until 120 degrees. You can use a candy thermometer um, or uh, an, an instant read, you know, to monitor the temperature. And then you add the fish and you transfer the pan with the fish in it to the oven Now, the oven is set at 250 degrees, by the way, and once the fish in the olive oil in the pan is in the oven, you count on your kitchen timer for exactly 25 minutes. Now, by the way, I have seen olive oil poaching done by chef friends and comrades and on television like you have a multitude of ways. You can actually do it on top of the stove at 180 degrees, but you have to monitor it and keep track of it and check the thermometer often. I happen to like this foolproof oven method. Once again, you bring the oil up to 120 degrees, you carefully lay in the fish, and you transfer it to a 250-degree oven. It's just that simple. Now, I have a few chef's tips to guarantee that your first olive oil poached fish is perfect. The best fish for olive oil poaching are very rich in flavor. Like I mentioned, the salmon, the halibut, the tuna, uh, for sure. And you want to make sure that your fish steaks, or you can use fillets, fillets, that's what I prefer, are at least three quarters of an inch thick. One inch thick is even better. Now the oil itself should be extra virgin because it has the richest flavor and it penetrates the fish. Uh, But you don't have to use the most expensive extra virgin olive oil because you will need quite a bit of it. And then as I mentioned as well, the pan itself needs to be a straight sided saute pan or a pan that will hold the fish in a single layer. You don't want to crowd it by overlapping, but you can fit a, a pretty good amount of fish in there. And then I will tell you, one of the most remarkable things about the technique that I use for olive oil poached fish is that 25 minutes is a magic number. There is something brilliant about the fact that it doesn't matter halibut or tuna or salmon if you let the fish sit out at room temperature, because if you take it straight from the fridge, it will lower the temperature of the oil when you add it. That 25-minute magic number works every time. And the best indicator is the appearance of little white droplets of what are albumin or protein on the outside of the fish. And you can always take a paring knife and just make a, a little cut and check that the fish is cooked all the way through. But I will say, once you master... The technique, you will be fully addicted because you see this pan that's filled with olive oil that's poaching fish gives you an opportunity to cook a few other things. Oh, by the way, you can olive oil poach chicken too. Now, I like to take a whole head of garlic, cut it in half and throw it in. And I will tell you, you get the most creamy, delicious, beautiful roasted garlic cloves to spread on bread. And it really adds beautiful fragrance and flavor to the oil. Now, you can also add other vegetables. Like if you add carrots alongside the fish, they are tremendous. They turn soft and bright orange and they are so scrumptious. And there are lots of other things that you can olive oil poach as well. And I will gladly share more tips and tricks on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, and also on my website where you'll find recipes galore at chefjamie.com. Really, there is no better way to pay tribute to a perfectly fresh piece of seafood. So I hope you will try it out and let me know what you think of olive oil poaching. You can always email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. And then, of course, if you want to become a master chef, techniques like this are shared at the start of every show, and you can find podcasts of this show that you might have missed on iTunes, FeedBurner, and Blueberry, and they'll come directly to your phone every week so that when you walk in the morning, I can definitely attempt to make you hungry as you listen to a podcast. You'll find them posted from my homepage just at the center of the page as well at chefjamie.com. And of course, there is food news this week. Okay, this makes me happy. Dunkin' Donuts has just released their fall lineup. Oh, yes. I hope that you're still going to the beach every day to get the most out of summer, but it is undeniable fall is coming, right? And as the season changes, so does the menu at Dunkin'. You did hear that Dunkin' Donuts is considering changing their name to just Dunkin'. Well, they're bringing back their eagerly anticipated pumpkin coffees, And the pumpkin donuts and the pumpkin muffins. There's this new pumpkin cream cheese spread, which I can't wait to taste. But the most exciting news at Dunkin' Donuts is undoubtedly the new lineup of maple everything. So you can look forward to maple pecan flavored coffee and lattes. A maple sugar bacon breakfast sandwich. How good does this sound? Sweet caramelized maple sugar cherry wood smoked bacon on a freshly baked croissant with egg and cheese. Yes, I love to cook. I love to eat. I'm classically French trained and I still love Dunkin' Donuts. And then for all you donut fans, there is a festival fall donut coming. It's the newest donut darling. It'll be on your Instagram feed in, you know, a few days or so. And it's an array of colors that celebrate the autumn season with red icing and chocolate and orange sprinkles. So these new fall items will arrive at Dunkin' Donuts no later than August 28th. They are available for a limited time throughout the season. And I don't care whether you call it Dunkin' Donuts or Dunkin', I'll take a cruller when you're there. And that is food news you can use. And then of course, don't touch your dial because the sweet and ever lovely, all-knowing and healthful to boot, <laughs> Ellie Krieger is here. We're back after the break with more delicious conversation. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. Dedicated to great taste, welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. This time of year is busy with everything from end-of-summer get-togethers to -to back-to-school potlucks, right? And the more, the merrier when it comes to celebrating with fabulous food, and of course, Who doesn't love to celebrate with Ellie Krieger? New York Times bestselling and James Beard award-winning author, Ellie Krieger certainly knows how to whip up fantastic recipes for a crowd. She's always showcasing easy ways to get nutritious and delicious family meals on the table at a really great value. You know her and love her as the host of Ellie's Real Good Food on PBS and for her New York Times best-selling cookbooks and of course her weekly column in the Washington Post. Well, she's back to dish and I am so delighted because Ellie it has been too long. How are you, Happy Summer?
2: Happy Summer. <laughs> yes, I love this time of year. It's like to me this is like the most relaxing fun time of year and I feel like people are always coming around and they always want to be
0: fed. (laughs) That's true, right? And we have to savor it because it seems to go so fast. Like August, you know, came so quickly and it makes me want to get everybody together and just really enjoy the time. And I love that you are... Often feeding a crowd, and that you talk about how to stretch a recipe. So, just give us some insight. What's on your table, you know, for next weekend's shindig?
2: Yeah, well, I guess you know one of the things in talking about um, stretching, you know, there's it's sort of like one of my key things I think for managing this time of year and to do it sort of like gracefully without, and also being able to have fun. Yes, is to stock up, right? So, really making sure that you have um, things on hand that you're going to be able to whip up into quick and easy kind of treats for people. And I have some ideas to share with you. But um, one of the things that people are often thinking about stocking up on, like dry goods and things like that, but I really recommend also from, you know, taste and health perspective, thinking about the fresh foods that you can stock up on. So things like yogurt and... Prepared hummus and many kinds of vegetables can last a couple of weeks, um, and things like eggs and yogurt can last three weeks in your refrigerator. So you can kind of have these ingredients on hand, and it makes it that much easier. Like you don't have to run out to the store every time you have guests coming over, but you have fresh, healthy foods. One of my favorite things to do is stock up on cucumbers, right, because I love to make these cucumber cups. I'm sure you've made these before, but I don't think people realize how incredibly easy it is to do. And it's the kind of thing that like, okay, it's so much better for you and healthier than like a cracker or a puff pastry or something. And it's so elegant and also
0: really affordable. And super simple. You know, Ellie, I'm the one that asks for cucumber instead of pita chips or, you know, otherwise when I'm at the Mediterranean restaurant, because I love the crunch and I do feel I'm eating healthier that way. And so what do you do? Do you cut them into pieces and then scoop out the center? So they act as little, you know, holding vessels?
2: Exactly. And so you have your, like you're saying, you order cucumber instead of pita at a Mediterranean place. So I think about this notion of like cucumber and hummus, right? Yes. Um, And so here, this is this uh, recipe that I developed that is just so easy, and it takes. It basically elevates your basic cucumber and hummus. So you take your cu- cucumber and you cut it crosswise into like three-quarter-inch thick pieces. Okay. And then you just take a little melon baller or nice. even a little spoon and you just scoop out the center. It's so easy. Smart. Like My daughter helps me with this, <laughs> um, and you can do it all. Actually, this part ahead of time if you know you have a, people coming over. And you want to, you know, you can do them a day or two ahead of time and put them in like an airtight container so they're done. And then I like to, I like to put my hummus into like a, a plastic bag and make like a little homemade piping bag. But you could actually use a spoon if you want, but you just, just fill it with hummus. You, and then my recipe is you fill it with hummus, and then you put toasted pine nuts on top, mm. a sprinkle of either mint and or chopped parsley and then a nice generous drizzle of extra virgin olive oil and it looks gorgeous it has all of these kind of textural elements the crunch from the cool crunch from the cucumber the crunch from the nuts the smooth creamy hummus and then it has all the nutritional elements you get protein from the hummus you get your vegetables and and healthy fats. So it's all good. It's all
0: there. Yeah. I I love that it does make you look like, as you know, I say culinary hero, like you really fuss to make something, you know, very extraordinary, but it is so super simple. I saw recently you posted, I know you're big on veggies and you always have been, and I love that, but you posted a zucchini noodle salad. And I thought about the opportunity to make it ahead for a party. And what a really nice compliment it would be to great grilled foods. So I'm moving from cucumber to, do, to zucchini to stay on the veggie front.
2: Yeah, I love that. And, that, and, and zucchini is another one that you can buy several. Yes. And they keep well. You know, it's a nice hearty vegetable. So you can buy in volume and save <laughs> essentially by doing that. But anyway, I'm, I, was, <laughs> I was always skeptical of like the spiralizer thing. Yes, <laughs> like oh, whatever. I can make noodles by with just using my um, my vegetable peeler, but and I did, and you can. <laughs> but when I try, I finally had a chance to try the spiralizer for myself, and I couldn't believe how entertained I was. It it really is. It's
0: sort of like a party in the kitchen. I agree with you. I loved reading that um, Washington Post piece of yours because it felt very real. Ellie Krieger's using a spiralizer. I love it, (laughs) It,
2: and I loved it. And the salad is so delicious. So you just like spiralize the zucchini, and um, and then yes, it actually is better when you let it drain. So it's one of those things
0: make ahead.
2: Really make ahead exactly. And I love the idea that you're you're putting in here with um serving it with grilled food cuz it's a perfect partner for that. Yeah,
0: nice, light and bright. Um back to school is quickly approaching. Are you starting to plan meals and freeze in bulk seeing that you're buying in bulk for volume? Yeah, well,
2: so, you know, my my latest book you haven't made, that's what it's all about.
0: That's right. And that's I love
2: perfect. It. And that's a perfect way to really, you know, stay ahead of the curve cuz you know that it's all going to hit the fan in September, <laughs> <That's> right? True. <laughs> So, yes, absolutely. Like, one of the things um, I made recently was uh, some spinach pies, mm. like Greek spinach pies. Yeah, I, I love to make those, and those are freeze so beautifully, and they're just great for dinners and... Even little snacks and stuff. So I guess we're on the Mediterranean talk today. We are. We?
0: we are. See, but but that's so very Ellie to me. We know that your PBS series, Ellie's Real Good Food, uh, can be seen across the country. And uh, of course, you know, I've always loved uh, your books and uh, your commitment to healthy eating. And so we will continue to follow. You can find flavorful, healthy solutions for real good food every day at EllieKrieger.com. And when you have more time will you stop by again and share your plans for fall feasts ellie i'd love to have you back oh yes great to talk with you jamie and take care enjoy the rest of your summer and you too happy summer to you as the delicious conversation continues we do have great culinary thinkers on this show and she is ellie krieger there's more fabulous food in your radio right after this My goal is to satiate your appetite every Sunday. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. To cork or not to cork? That is the question. The great wine cork debate continues. I personally am an advocate for cork for many reasons, and cork closures can be found in about 60% of wines produced in the U.S. and abroad. We're digging deeper today and we're getting to know our wine better, cork specifically. Peter Weber is the executive director of the California-based Cork Quality Council, a nonprofit group organized to promote education and improved quality assurance for the wine and cork industries, and he's here to dish, and I'm glad to have you. Hi Peter.
1: Hi Jamie, great, <laughs> great to be here.
0: Well, thank you for uh, for sharing your passion and your knowledge. Can you debunk the Myth, Please, because this ongoing debate continues, but from what I understand, we are not running out of cork anytime soon, and we're not harming the environment by using it either right
1: that's entirely correct um, <clears throat> actually, harvesting cork is considered beneficial to the environment hmm. by uh, uh, for the trees themselves and obviously for the valuable ecosystem of the Mediterranean cork forest um the uh, force is actually probably expanding, but even if it were not, um, not all cork trees are harvested, and there's there's plenty of capacity for additional cork.
0: And and there's lots of uh, specifications in place that maintain and assure us that the cork is is a never-ending ecosystem supply, right? Because cork is peeled off the tree. It's not that you cut a tree down. And then there are r- rules and regulations.
1: Yes, there are. There, there are different regulations in the EU and uh, also in uh, place in some countries in North Africa.
0: Uh, currently,
1: the uh, World Wildlife Fund um, considers the cork forest to be, I think, next to the Amazon rainforest, the most important ecosystem for them to support and protect. So there's a, there's a lot of attention Uh, uh, on maintaining this Mm. uh, forest. And and indeed, uh, one of the most critical things um, in their recommendations is to promote the use of wine corks because that uh, attaches an economic uh, benefit to maintaining the forest at its current levels.
0: Right, it provides jobs. It uh, counters soil erosion because the trees, I understand, have to remain untouched for years. The cork is the wood that is peeled off the tree. Does it reproduce?
1: Yes, it, it, um, uh, it, it, I think the reason why they call it a cork tree, I'm not sure which came first, but uh, <laughs> that, that level of, um, of, of of dead wood underneath the bark is called cork, and the cork tree has very thick cork. In fact, it, it usually takes about nine years for it to be uh, sufficiently thick to punch a wine cork out of it, so that's that means it it will grow an inch and a half or so uh, in nine years and will be harvested uh, every nine years. It's uh, generally like clockwork.
0: It's fascinating to me. Uh, Where does the majority of cork come from in the world?
1: Commercially, um, cork is primarily Portugal Mm -hmm. um, and to to, uh, other levels, Spain and parts of North Africa. I mean, you can grow cork trees in the United States very easily and they do quite well. But um, there's really no industry here to try to uh,
0: harvest them. And then, from what I know, and I think this is fabulous, the cork that isn't used for wine bottles, so that we can drink well, has other uses, right? If I lay on my yoga mat tomorrow, I should think of you. Sure. Right.
1: And uh, and obviously, the cork flooring business is uh, is very popular right now. Yes. Um, and you've seen other things and. Uh, I've seen somebody makes a cork umbrella made with a kind of a cork fabric that uh, uh, always makes me
0: smile. How cool. No doubt. Um, All right. Let's talk about the advantages and disadvantages of cork when it comes to a wine bottle specifically. The cork industry itself has continued to maintain levels of quality, and you can tell I'm I'm supporting it because I believe in cork in a wine bottle for lots of reasons, and we'll get to it. But there is an ongoing conversation about TCA. It affects the taste of wine, and I'd love if you would elaborate.
1: Well, sure. Um, We consider TCA to be um, uh, a fairly serious uh, wine flaw, Um, and it is one that is associated with cork, though, there are plenty of examples of TCA coming from other places, but at the Core Quality Council, for instance, one of our major our major project is to guard against TCA, and we do that mostly by uh, inspecting um, every lot that comes into the country before it's distributed to a, uh, a winery. Mm-hmm. And we analyze over thirty thousand samples every year, and have have seen a, a very sharp decline in the occurrence of TCA over the the past twelve years that we've been doing this testing. Um, the reasons for that are a combination of education, uh, the farmers are doing a better job um, uh, keeping any sources of chlorine out of the woods. Um, the people who harvest the bark uh, have changed some of their practices so they don't harvest the uh, the oak that's uh, near the ground because that that seems to be the, uh, the most dangerous. And the processors themselves have found Ways to um, uh, to clean the cork, and also to make sure that TCA doesn't develop after the cork has been harvested. Um, you you run into TCA all the time. It's it's a fairly common thing. I mm-hmm. smell TCA when I go to the supermarket, usually in the carrots, sometimes in the apples, often in the raisins. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's fairly common. One of the problems we have in the wine business is that the um, uh, the official chemical that you would want to use to dilute uh, and present uh, TCA is about a 12% ethanol solution, which is what our wine glass is. And then we obviously hold up our wine to our nose and take a good smell. So it's, it's particularly visible in, a, in the wine industry.
0: And so the Great Cork Debate continues more with Peter Weber of the Cork Council just after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as the delicious conversation continues. Peter Weber is here and we are sharing the virtues of cork. A synthetic cork doesn't allow any bits of oxygen to enter the bottle to help continue the aging process. That is why cork, which is uh, impervious to gas and liquids, does allow and does benefit the wine, right?
1: yes i i mean if 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 you can give me a I guess a couple of seconds here i cork lets a little bit of oxygen in the wine because when you compress that cork, you compress it to almost fifty percent of its original uh, width and you stick it in the wine bottle that creates a high pressure of of the oxygen that was inside the cork in those tiny little cells, and it takes about nine months to ten months for that oxygen to slowly get into the uh, uh, wine bottle, hmm. and then it stops. So you get a little dose of oxygen. The the synthetics actually uh, are permeable to oxygen to a slight extent. So there's always going to be a small amount of oxygen coming through that closure. It never really stops. And so that's why you see premature aging sometimes in, in, in those.
0: Interesting. And then uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you your opinion of a screw cap, albeit I know you are a cork supporter, but we, we should at least mention it.
1: Sure. Well, once again, it's it's an oxygen question. And the screw caps, when they originally came out, used to use a tin liner, which was really impermeable in any way. Mm. And you've seen over the past dozen years that the the screw cap manufacturers are experimenting with different liners so they can let a little bit more oxygen in so it could behave more like a cork. The problem is, once again, it's permeable. So whatever the rate of oxygen, it's going to continue coming that way forever. So it's um, it's really hard to duplicate uh, hmm. uh, the natural cork, which basically applies a small dose of oxygen right. and then stops. And that's why traditionally it's used for wines that will,
0: will, will age. Okay, so then I think we've surmised it. Um, and in my personal opinion, I will say cork reigns supreme. And to lovers of fine wine, the cork carries a really long tradition of nostalgic lore There is a very satisfying sound with the pop of a cork. Um, And so I will continue to look for real cork um, and commend you for your continued work with, uh, of course, the California-based Cork Quality Council uh, to better our wine and to better the planet. I know uh, there's lots of great information and you can learn more at corkqc.com. And, of course, this is wonderful dinner party conversation to be in the know. So, Peter, I thank you once again for sharing your passion. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. He is Peter Weber, the executive director of the California-based Cork Quality Council. But do raise a glass because there is more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, Be right back. Beer lovers, rejoice. We're back and we're dishing Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. For the 36th year, beer lovers will gather in Colorado this October at the Great American Beer Festival. It is the renowned American beer festival and competition where you can sample over 3,800 beers from more than 800 breweries around the country. Talk about finding your hoppy place, right? If you are a hophead or an IPA aficionado or a lager lover, well, then this conversation is for you. Julia Hers is a certified Cicerone, the publisher of craftbeer.com, the craft beer program director at the Brewers Association, and the author of two beer pairing books. And she is joining us to share the craft beer world, beer trends, and of course, this year's festival. And I'm so glad to have you. Hi, Julia.
3: Hi, Jamie. Thanks (laughs) for the chance to talk.
0: Yes, of course. I know um, you're happy talking about beer because you (laughs) are a home brewer on top of all of the other accomplishments I just read aloud. Yep. Yep. Yes, and and what is it about home brewing? What is it about beer that, that brought you to this wonderful and ever-growing, fast-growing world?
3: Yeah, I mean, beer is definitely a love and a passion of mine, and I think that I've been exposed to thinking about the beverage in a way that's really broad, and that's mm. taken me very far. I'm not just a hobbyist. I also work at the National Association that represents the majority of breweries. The Brewers Association puts on Great American Beer Festival, and I just... I just, I'm attracted to beer just as I am attracted to food as a foodie. And it really is a beverage where the more you learn, the more you know you want to learn.
0: You know, similar to wine, there's so much science and chemistry in it. And I think that's what's so wonderful about this massive growth of the beer movement is that we've really, uh, come to understand the extraordinary education and the knowledge and the experimentation that has gone into the beer world. And we've elevated because of it. Would you agree?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to say that kind of craft beer with the whole movement has helped beer as a beverage reclaim its place at the dinner table. Hmm. And so especially for your listeners, I mean, beer really has become more than you know, just an American lager in the glass, we at the Brewers Association document more than 150 world beer styles. The majority of those styles are being made and produced in the United States. And, you know, the whole concept of flavor and pairing, if you look at the beverage of beer, it really has prowess and goes towards the pairing arena in a way that wine doesn't. They're two very different beverages. And, you know, if you, if you just take the whole sensory side of malt where you've got, you know, heat-influenced flavors from kilned and roasted malt that just really marry with grilled, roasted, and smoked meats, and then the carbonation of beer, you've just got this incredible opportunity to get to know a beverage next to your food in a way that, you know, I think um, will only continue to grow.
0: Oh, definitely so. I love that you mentioned the carbonation as well, because you're right, different than the wine world, you know, we see um, bubbles as a wonderful way to cut through richness, to lighten a meal, but there is often little depth to that. It's, it's more a palate cleanser or considered as such, right? But with beer, you do get depth of flavor, hop or malt. You, you get that textural Flavorful profile on top of the effervescence that makes it incredibly food friendly.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And what's fun with different beer styles is what, you know, and we can get geeky, which is great permission to have a little fun. Get geeky,
0: please, Julia. Get geeky. You know, geeky.
3: every, all the, I mentioned 150 beer styles, tens of thousands of beer brands in the U.S. And frankly, there's not one main level of volume of CO2 or carbonation. So beer on draft at your average restaurant is definitely set and balanced to be served at a certain volume of CO2 in that keg, 2.5 to 2.7 volumes of CO2. But a variety of different beer styles... um, are going to give you a variety of different carbonation levels. And so sometimes you have a softer mouthfeel from the carbonation. Sometimes a brewer actually worked you know, um, and got nitrogen um, as the main sensory component on the bubble side. Hmm. So you've got this variety of mouthfeel, um, a strata of mouthfeel, that also really comes into play on the sensory and appreciation side as well as impairing.
0: It's fascinating and great stuff at craftbeer.com where you will find uh, articles and insight and education, no doubt, for everything you love about the beauty of beer. She is Julia hers certified Cicerone, publisher at craftbeer.com and the beer program director at the Brewers Association. Check it out, the 2017 Great American Beer Festival. Tickets in Denver, Colorado, I believe, are available now, and uh, I hope our paths cross again, and that we can toast someday soon with one of your home brews, Julia. That'd be an honor, really would. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I hope that you found inspiration, that you are planning to cook something delicious this week, or master a technique or make some really great reservations because I made you hungry enough to lick your radio. And with that said, I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for the hour. Of course, you'll always find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com where you'll find this recipe. I'm also going to post it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram right away so that you have it on my shameless daily feed But, you know, as summer comes to a close, so do campfires and camping and all those wonderful celebrations uh, outside and under the stars. And when I think of summer, I think of s'mores. I love anything s'mores. So this four-ingredient s'mores pie will thrill you if you are a marshmallow, chocolate, graham cracker addict as well. (laughs) You take chocolate chips and cream and you make a ganache, essentially heat them in the microwave, stir them till smooth, pour them into a prepared graham cracker crust, and then you top it with marshmallows. It goes under the broiler for just a couple of minutes. And yes, it is a marshmallow fudge pie with a graham cracker crust, all store-bought, just too easy and oh, so yummy. You'll find a four ingredients s'mores pie recipe once again on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I'll meet you here next Sunday for more scintillating conversation in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.